Cloudways is a managed cloud hosting platform that simplifies the web hosting experience for agencies. The platform offers complete peace of mind and allows agencies to focus on their growth with 24 7, 365 support and very easy to use features. Cloudways is launching its agency partnership program that is designed to help agencies grow to new heights. Please visit cloudways.com slash en slash agency and join the program to get access to extended technical support, discounts, and co-marketing opportunities with Cloudways. That's cloudways.com slash en slash agency. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name is Monique Drummond, the founder of Relish, an insight agency working to help make insight and market research just as sexy as advertising. We talk about the deep human truths that they help their clients uncover, which allows them to go on to create some communications that truly outperform the market. You will not meet an agency owner as kind and as warm as Monique, but being kind and warm doesn't guarantee anything in our industry. Monique has a really deep understanding about what really matters to consumers and how to get at those those human truths. She combines that with a really sharp business acumen and deep understanding of what the marketplace demands, which has really enabled Relish to work with and retain some of the biggest and best brands around today. If you're interested in anything to do with growing an agency, insight and advertising, female entrepreneurship, and what makes a great agency, this podcast is for you. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Monique Drummond. Monique Drummond is the founder of Relish and Insights Agency, working with leading brands across the world. Relish thrives on insight, innovation, and impact. Their team is driven by a desire to deliver deep results for clients that will drive growth for their broad range of blue chip clients. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Monique Drummond, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Hello, Nathan, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolute pleasure having you on the show. Our producer, Chris, has been in awe of your content ever since he found your videos and your content online. So it's an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Let's start with your history and background before we get into the technical details of the agency. You went to university to study English literature in Wellington in New Zealand. Did you ever think that you would find yourself working in market research? Never, 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 never. But then I don't think anyone does. In fact, back in the day, I don't even know that market research, as it was sort of known then, was even existed. I didn't know anything about it. And I think it's very much the same many, many years later, that very few people actually consider a career in the business while they're at university. So tell us how you went from McKay King Advertising, an advertising agency in 1984, to actually setting up Relish in, in 2011. Tell us the founding story of the agency? Well, when I left university, I did a brief sort of 18 months, two years in a market research business in New Zealand, which was one of the two or three that were going at the time. And from there, I was I went into brand management. And from the brand management career, which was marketing, which was the most fantastic bedrock, I think, for being in the insights industry, 
I then went into advertising as a planner. And that advertising agency, as you've just said, was Mackay King that later became Saatchi's just as I was leaving New Zealand. Hmm. And I really was working in advertising as a planner. And in those days, planning was very much a function of putting any data or consumer thinking into creative development. And it was a fantastic career to start off with. And I worked in advertising for about four years before setting off as on my own to do my own thing as a freelance market researcher, as I was back in those days. So give us an idea of how the business has grown over the last 10 years and, and give us an idea of kind of where you are now. People, revenue, if you can go into that, sites, clients, give us a flavor yep. of how you've grown and sort of a picture of where you are. Sure. Well, it was a very sort of difficult start to being a freelancer. And one of the reasons I actually left advertising was that in 1986, I'd just got married and we I was very aware that obviously we wanted to start a family at some stage, but with very little sort of maternity arrangements or allowances, it would, would have been very difficult to leave a career and then to have a family and then to go back to it. It was not very, uh, very well established and without maternity leave, maternity pay or anything like that. Mm. I thought the best thing would be to leave advertising and set up my own business um, to sort of future proof my own career. And if I was working for myself and had set up my own clients and my own business, I could then have a family and grow alongside the family rather than leaving because of being and then trying to get back into, into the world of advertising. So that's, that was really what precipitated the decision. So the least risky thing was for you to actually set up your own business because the maternity cover, as it was back then, is, is not what we have today. Yeah. And it wasn't really so much the cover or the pay for when you were off. It was how do you get back into work if you have a young baby? How do you then resume your career? Sure. And this was 86, so a long time ago. And I thought, well, if I'm doing it on my own and for myself, I can't be affected by struggling to get back into a role in advertising. And certainly in all my, in where I work, no one had come back into the workforce. It was a very young business that I was working with and no one had come back in. And, and certainly the idea of being able to leave early for nursery care or all those sort of things that we take for granted now just didn't exist. Mm. So I, I, I did figure that if I had set up on my own, I could then interleave being a mother with what I did, which was essentially qualitative research, doing focus groups and depth interviews and working mainly for advertising agencies and also for some clients direct. So you say, quote, you're on a mission for the industry. You want insights and market research to be as attractive and interesting as the advertising industry itself. Explain. Well, market research does not sound very interesting. I think it sounds very academic. And when we think of research, it often is, li is linked to science, which is, you know, fantastic in itself. And there is a lot of rigor about what we do. But at the same time, it doesn't have the kind of the ring or the sexiness of being in advertising. And yet a lot of the work we do is in advising brands and coming up with great ideas and helping brands to innovate. So there's a lot more that goes on within the world of market research, in inverted commas. So in a way, what we are is we are behavioral specialists. We understand the way consumers think and, and re respond to advertising or to brand messaging or anything. 
We are communication consultants. We focus very much on using consumer thinking to help our brands that we work with understand how people might receive their new product or their new service and to look for ideas and help them look for ideas for new products, new services that, that are more in line with the needs of consumers. So we quantify behaviors as well. So apart from talking one-on-one or in, a, in, in groups, or as we used to do more of before the pandemic, we quantify behaviors and we can come back with actual data. We can work out what's an ideal pricing strategy. So there's so many different facets to market research that we all prefer to talk about it more as consumer insight, because really what we are doing is delivering insight. And with those insights, brands are able to make better decisions. Can you share an an example that, that brings this to life and an example that has added significant value to a brand or a client that you've worked with? Yeah, well, actually, there are, there are a few. Um, if I think very recently, um, we worked with Tesco, and they are really brilliant clients. We work a lot with their communications team, which is both their advertising agency, BBH, and also with their internal communications team. And last year was such a tough time for all retailers, but Tesco really were kind of ahead of the game in terms of trying to work out what are we going to be telling people at Christmas? Because do we make reference to the year we've had or do we ignore it? Do we go down a happy route? So way back in May, they decided to start working with consumers to follow the zeitgeist, if you like, of the way they were thinking at the time Mm. and realizing from the, we, we put together a panel of people that we spoke to almost once every month or every two months at least from May onwards, right through. And in the middle of that, we started talking about what direction did they feel that advertising at Christmas could or should take. And they came up with, BBH came up with two pretty good ideas for advertising. But we just knew from the way the consumers responded to them that they weren't really exciting or they weren't really on brand for Tesco to the extent that they could be. And Tesco and the agency are really involved. So when we're doing these um, interviews with people, which is largely via Zoom at the moment, they could see and hear for themselves that there was one that was a slightly stronger option, but that if we all sat down as a team, we recognized that neither of them were strong enough. And as a result of it, and very bravely, quite close to the wire, they decided, look, let's rethink what we've heard. And they came up with the campaign idea, which you could just tell the moment we even looked at the idea of no naughty list. And the people that were on our panel and other people that we also consulted afterwards bought into it straight away because they said, look, it's been a hell of a year. We deserve a break. Let's give ourselves. So the no naughty list campaign that won a number of awards and I think was the most talked about campaign did so well because it was really tapping into the way people were feeling, which is we deserve a bit of a break. And they were even suggesting things that could go into the ads, such of no naughty list. You know, Santa had been on holiday, what people were eating and all sorts of things. And it was a it wasn't just endearing. It was so positive for Tesco, particularly to put out a message like that. And I think without the the panel of people that we'd got to know around the country, we got to know them really well and spoken to them often. They were feeding in the sense of what was right, what was the right sort of tone to set mm. and and how to use gentle humor to get across some pretty powerful messages while being able to showcase the great food. 
So that's one example. You know, there are other examples. We, we do a lot of work for Southern Water. And again, another fantastic client to work with. And in terms of, we were just talking about before, behavioural change is talking about water. And there's a lot of need for people to use less water. But internally, Southern Water, along with all the water sort of authorities, would talk about reusing water. From a consumer perspective, reusing water feels really quite alien, if not repulsive, because mm. it makes you think, mm -hmm. where the hell is my water coming mm -hmm. from? <laughs> so by shifting the language from the inside out into talking about recycling water, and we all know that we recycle glass or, or plastics or tin, they understood that this could come back in a really good and, and a pure form. And so by just shifting the whole language of how to reuse water into recycling, it became something that made it so much easier for people to grasp. And, and that's really what we would call framing. It's how do you frame a message? And so Southern Water took a, listened again to that and just picked up on it straight away. And as a result, they've had much greater success on people's willingness to accept the concept and even to engage with recycling water practices. Really fascinating. So, so what are some of the misconceptions that clients or brands typically have about market insights and market research that you typically get time and time again, and that you are able to quite easily dispel? What are some of the misconceptions people have about the space? I think some of the misconceptions are that the brands or agencies, and these are less, they sometimes can feel they know as much as the consumers. When I firmly believe that people just in gentle conversations over Zoom now, but in the olden days, face-to-face -face before the pandemic, in groups, if you actually talk to people, you often get little phrases or just little hints of things that you can then just cotton onto. Because if you've been working with consumers for a long time, you do pick up on nuances. Sometimes it's what they don't say as much as what they do say. And I think some of the misconceptions are, what do a few people know when we probably know better? We've been working in this category for years. Mm. And almost by thinking you you know everything, you can sometimes end up not being open to, to new messages or, or new ideas. Interesting. I, th I think the other thing is that market researchers sort of, if people think about it, they often think of people with clipboards in the street. <laughs> And actually, online approaches have become enormously sophisticated, almost gamified. And the days of getting people to sit in front of a computer with a one hour long survey are long gone. You know, it's it's what do we really need to know? What techniques and tools can we use to shorten the length of the survey to make the surveys more accurate? And importantly, behind the scenes, there are, are click throughs or, or just a sense of how you can absolutely check that it's a genuine person answering in a correct way. So there is a lot of science and technology that goes into the industry, but there's also still very much and at the heart of it all is an understanding of, of, of the way we all think. And that's not just consumers, that's us. We are also consumers. Hmm. So it's, it's how we think and being open to changes in the way people are thinking and feeling. Talk a little bit about how Market Insights, the, the field has sort of changed over the last 10 years or so since since you've been in the industry in terms of everything from 
collecting data, as you said before, you know, the perception was people sort of standing in the street with with clipboards. Now we're far more sophisticated in how we actually collect and use the insights that we that we gather. Talk a little bit about how the the field has sort of evolved and changed as modern technology has progressed. I think another major change, obviously, is the sophistication of how people can be monitored or measured in terms of how we're using our computers and and the customer data that clients have themselves on all of us is huge and profound and can, can really help shape directions of how people are shopping online, what they are doing. So we can often pick up on clients' data as well as the data that we originate through through an online survey. And there are so many different techniques and and types of studies that we do. But again, I think if if we think of it all as, as providing insight to build a brand, because ultimately everything we do is making a service or a brand more acceptable, even if it's in whatever sector it might be. Ultimately, we're trying to make that brand more profitable or that service um, more relevant. And if we can put consumer thinking into all of those thinking, it is really about insight that we are working rather than just market research, which really can sound a little bit more limited and quite dull. And I think that's why very few young people think to go into market research as a profession. And, you know, I have quite a few chats with people on LinkedIn about how do we make it more exciting and how do how does the industry get recognized for the role it plays in developing great packaging, great advertising, the products or services, all sorts of things where most brands do so much consumer market research or insight, and yet most people don't understand the role that it's actually played to get those products onto the shelves. Sure. Yeah, I, I always liken it to, you know, market research is, is the bit that you do before you get to do the advertising, the sexy, <laughs> cool bit. But without without the insights, you don't get to do anything else. So yeah. that's that's really fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about the agency in, in a bit more detail. So how would you categorize your superpower as an agency? I mean, what makes Relish different, stand out, special to other insight agencies? That might be out there. Mm. I think any agency's superpower, but look, I'm talking especially about Relish. It's it's really our people, the team that we have, and the relationship that we've developed with the clients. Because in a way, the superpower is the fusion of relationship between the clients that we work with, that we love working with, and the team and the way we all work together. And there is the sense of, of tenacity and a need to get the job not just done, but done really, really well. And to be curious and sometimes quite challenging in terms of a brief we might receive to say, look, we've already done something quite similar, yeah. or here's a great brief, but can we understand the marketing objectives? Sometimes we're working with the in- client's internal insight team, but if we can understand a little bit more about what's going on upstream, um, what are the marketing team looking to get out of this? And and just saying, if, if this debrief had to be 10 minutes of conversation with us at the end of it, what are the things you'd like to hear in that 10 minutes? What are the real three questions you most want to have answered? Mm. You know, I, I sometimes think that the whole issue, and we, we get asked it in pitch work we're doing, you know, what makes you different? What is your superpower? Mm. The reality is we are all 
talking in our business. It's all about consumer insight and how we deliver it. Hmm. And ultimately, unless you're a really specialist agency with a with a tech niche product, which is pretty unique IP, ultimately it does come down to the people hmm. and the relationships with clients. So you started the business, as we said at the top of the conversation, as a way of future-proofing your own career. How will you future-proof relish and remain relevant to clients both now and in the future? Mm. It's really hard to talk about future-proofing right now, isn't it? Goodness, if you'd asked about future-proofing last February, where would we all be? Right. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Was it was it Steve Jobs who said um, you should work on creating relevance, not awareness? Hmm. And I think perhaps for us it is about focusing on what our clients' needs are and how to deliver them, which is more about the relevance. We've got two challenges really in our industry and I think probably in lots of industries very similar to ours. The first is that our clients' teams and budgets are shrinking in many cases. So they want things done faster, their budgets are being squeezed a little bit and they really need what we call clean and lean. I think some people refer to agile research which really is we want it tomorrow, we want it for less than we've ever had it done before, and we want to make sure the answers are right. So that's one squeeze at one end. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, we're seeing some larger clients are in-housing the functions that we do, just as they are, they're often in-housing the creative ability, they're in-housing media. So a lot of clients are taking on the role that we have. And I don't think any industry is protected now because what we used to do was very much an island that no one else could could visit, whereas now management consultants do some of what we do, advertising agencies do some of the same, of the tasks and, and work that we do. So we're almost all kind of fusing our expertise and it's where do we go from here and how do we future-proof based on that. So hmm. in in the middle of all of that, we have to work out how we should be able to have conversations with clients that are more relevant. And if we just keep focusing on the role that we have, or my belief is, is, is the role that we have, is essentially to put consumer thinking into the boardroom and into the businesses, I think we will stay relevant. And if we can do that in a better way than management consultants can or in-house teams can, because what's so fantastic about our business is Sometimes I might be talking to a retail client, but our experiences, say, in the utility sector will have equal relevance because it's actually the way people are feeling at the moment. And you can pull on, you could be working within, we've just done a a big piece in, in the DIY sector, but if you look at that, you can also talk about the way people are feeling about shopping for groceries. So if, mm-hmm. if, you, if you're just aware of how people are feeling and shopping and spending their money and their pressures and anxieties, they can sort of act as a, as a thread through a lot of client work. But if you're just, if, if the client is trying to do that work themselves, they often are just so very much focused on their own vertical market Whereas we can bring in sort of horizontal thinking, which is often where the value is. And that's what I call the value add. Hmm. I think the other way of future-proofing what you do is to try and encourage entrepreneurial thinking in your own team and everything that they do. How How does this improve the product? How does it improve the service? Where's the value add that we can bring? And at the end of the debriefs, as, as when we finish our pieces of work, we call it a debrief, 
if at the end of the debrief you've left some really salient points that clients can immediately think, bang, we know exactly what to do now. We know which ad to run with. We know which packaging is going to work. We know how to talk to consumers to get them to stop using so much water or whatever the, the brief might be. If you can put the, the findings into a nutshell that is digestible and something they can communicate across their team, then I think we've, we've done a job pretty well. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about business development and, and how you grow the business. What is your approach to business development? How do you attract new clients to the agency? It's really interesting question, Nathan. We, every year, obviously, we would do our end of year results and we look at them. And then we look at our new business and, and where has it come from? And of the sort of maybe 20 to 25 brand new clients we have every year, I would suggest at least 80% of those new clients would come from referrals. Hmm. That is, a client will recommend us to somebody else or a client will have gone on somewhere else and taken us with them. Interesting. So, look, we've tried outsourcing the business development function to specialist agencies. Hmm. And the reality is I don't think anyone can sell relish and who we are as well as our own team can with the expertise and the stories to be told. Mm. Because the stories, I think, are far more authentic if we're talking about what we've done for other brands and how we've worked for other brands. Otherwise, it, it feels, I'm sure, if, you're just, if, you're out, if you've outsourced that, to be a script that is being read rather than a story that is being told. And I'd love to know how to be more successful in finding brilliant outsourced business development agencies, but we haven't cracked that nut. Um, <laughs> I think I think what's really interesting is I listened to a business development seminar a wee while ago, and someone was pointing out the huge difference between business development in America and here, in that okay. in America, it would not be at all uncommon for me to send an email or, or ask you, Nathan, I'd really like you to introduce me to someone who you know. And you'd say, sure, no problem. And you'd send an email to somebody and, and to me and say, I'd like you to meet Monique. Monique works for Relish. They do this, this, and this. And to the other person, I think you'd enjoy meeting because I'll leave it up to you guys to connect. Hmm. And I think that's really powerful to have the confidence to ask, could you do a referral? And it's so much better than just a testimonial, which is often tagged up to the end of a pitch, which is here's something someone else has said about us, Sure. to actually ask for an active referral, which is, I understand, far more common and people are delighted to do it and almost flattered to be asked to do it. Whereas I think we're a little bit more reticent over here in England to say, would you mind very much referring me and feeling, oh, I'm, is this a bit much to ask? Why do you think that is, do you think? Maybe out of the pandemic has come this thing that we are a little bit kinder and, and looking out for each other a bit more because sure. I'm delighted to, you know, if anyone knows anyone that I might be able to introduce them to, I'm very happy to do so and would like mm. to think people would, you know, return the favour. Really interesting. So just following on from that, I mean, what are the most important metrics that you track as a agency owner that tells you that you're on the right track, that you're growing in the right way, that makes sure that you're sustainable as an agency? I think the first has to be about the people, the sense that you get 
back in the day, remember you say you'd walk into the agency and you'd get the vibe. We don't do that anymore at the moment, but nope. the sense that you you get about how the team is getting on with each other, how excited they are about the work they're doing, what the workloads mm. are like, a sense of camaraderie and helpfulness and just that we're all in a good place and we're all in one direction and fantastic, we've just won this account and isn't that exciting? Or we did win that pitch, that's brilliant. So one of the things that keeps one metric is the team's happiness about where they are and, and why they're at relish. So that has to be a pretty fundamental one. The other one has to be about the whole purpose of what we're doing, which is ultimately to run an insight agency that delivers fantastic results for the clients. And in turn, they think we're brilliant, keep coming back there, their share of spend with us goes up and we're running a really profitable business because if if we are doing well and the team is all doing well then that is something that means that we are sustainable as we move forward and to deny the need to keep an eye on the bottom line um, especially after the year we've come through and the first six months of which was really tough for us um, is really missing the the whole point of owning a business. You know, a business has to be profitable to look after its team properly. So it's both product and and the team and purpose, I guess, are the two metrics. Have you thought about launching a professional B2B podcast for your company? Podcasting is a great way to generate new business opportunities by targeting the specific decision maker that you need to influence. You can also use podcasting to expand your business within existing accounts while deepening relationships, educating your marketplace, communicate and share information with your employees and wider stakeholders, build your brand by creating high quality, frequent content, or just have chats with people that you really want to speak to. No other channel gives you unprecedented access to your target decision makers. That includes ABM, email, and other direct approaches. A well-produced podcast could be just the thing your brand needs to cut through all of the noise. Agency Dealmasters produce world-class B2B podcasts for agencies and brands. Head over to agencydealmasters.com now to learn how we're helping other brands win new business and grow their market share with a strategic B2B podcast or email me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Let's talk a little bit about leadership. I've got a couple of questions here and then I want to get on to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests towards the end of the interview. I'm looking forward to asking you some of them as well. In a recent video that we watched, you said, I'm not a female entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur. Explain why you felt like you needed to point that out, that distinction between the two. Look, I think that implicit in the qualification of saying Monique is a female entrepreneur is a view that I am an entrepreneur either because I'm a woman or despite being a woman. And I don't think either of those things are quite right for me. I, I just think I am an entrepreneur. I don't think I've, I've had the advantage necessarily of being a woman, but I don't think it's ever been a disadvantage from my perspective. I mean, we never really precede the word, um, you know, Nathan is a male entrepreneur. Mm. So it's sort of funny to me that it should be necessary to proceed it with the fact that I'm a female entrepreneur. Sure. Look, look, I'm not saying for a minute that it isn't tougher for some women, whether that's 
you know, two dimensions. Is it a glass ceiling or is it a sticky floor hmm. that makes it very difficult for women sometimes to get ahead and, and because they're just not given the opportunities. And I have to be really grateful that, you know, it was important from me growing up from my parents' perspective that I went to university. So I, I have had a really lucky start in life and I can't deny that. And therefore I'm also, I think, really lucky that the industry, the insight industry tends to be well, probably one of the most equal industries there are. We've certainly got more women on our team than we do have men. And that's not uncommon in the insight world. So it's not that I deny being a female entrepreneur. I just don't see that as defining who I am. Hmm. In what ways has being an entrepreneur who is also a female been a positive experience for you? Hmm. How's it been positive? It's another tough question. I can remember once when I did a debrief for a client and we were looking at some packaging and I essentially said that if, if this was the brief, neither, none of the three routes were achieving it. And then we had quite an animated discussion and I said, look, if you want to, you could say this is the best, but once again, none of them are doing, this was your objective and none of the packs are achieving this objective. So, you know, really on, you know, on the criteria, all three are what we would say not recommended and and usually we're about optimizing rather than acting as judge and jury Mm. we try and offer positive solutions and workarounds or whatever and the client just laughed and and said to me and I hadn't heard the expression before but he said you are an iron fist in a velvet glove and I said well what's that meant to mean and he said it's you you sort of seem more gentle on the outside let you've just come (laughs) in with the harshest of news and said (laughs) that what we've come up with is is shit. And I said, well, it is really. <laughs> <laughs> but you've delivered it in a really gentle way. Yeah, maybe we can just, del- maybe that's one advantage for a woman that you can be a little bit more gentle while delivering some pretty unpalatable news. <laughs> but actually, you know, yeah. the reality should be that as insight specialists, we should be saying, look, they didn't like it because, but therefore have you considered or help rewrite the brief for the future or say, was your packaging objectives, are they simply unattainable, but not just saying mm. it's a big no, because that's mm. the other worry that is sometimes that we all face is that if we're working with ad agencies or creative people, they see us as sitting on a kill switch and they just want to make sure we're never going to hit it. When actually we're working very much in collaboration with them to develop the best work, the best ideas that, that will go forward. Mm. I'm not sure whether that's a female thing. I know a lot of women who are happy to deliver pretty bad news pretty br- bluntly and, and, and directly yeah. as well. A lot of them are in, in my family, actually. So, <laughs> But you've survived, Nathan. <laughs> I've survived. It's made my skin thick. <laughs> Let's get into everyone's favourite questions. Now, these are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm super excited to ask you some of these as well, Monique. I'm going to pick some of these at random and fire them at you, but start with our favourite one, of course. Mm-hmm. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Mm. Do you know the failures, I think, that have affected me the most are really when we make a wrong hire. When we bring in somebody who we think is going to be brilliant for Relish, brilliant for our team, Sometimes and often it's the more senior people who have got a black book that they say will 
bring us this or do this. And it's costly on a number of, well, it's costly on three fronts. It's often costly in terms of the recruitment fees. It's costly in terms of the fact the more senior it's the salaries. There is a human tendency, or maybe it's just a me tendency, that you keep thinking, let's hope it'll work out or it's too, it's mm. too early days. And then the third and most important cost really is on the team because you've brought someone in who you're not sure about. You can bet your boots they've seen through them as well and they probably are very unsure about them. And, and extricating yourself from those situations is sometimes difficult and therefore you think, oh, how long do we keep going? So I think if you're going to fail on that sort of level, fail fast, make those decisions, have criteria in place and my learning now is to be less tolerant of people that don't really deliver pretty early on. And obviously, I don't mean like in the first month, but, you know, three months in or four months in, how long do you give it? And I think I've shortened that time period considerably. So, yeah, there have been expensive failures sometimes, but you've, if you learn from them, you know, this you get something out of it. What have you learned about how to attract the right talent in the first place to the agency? making sure that the people that you interview and the people that you shortlist and ultimately hire actually turn out to be better for the agency than not. What have you learned about that over the years? Oh, over the years? Uh, look, I've, I've, you know, we still sometimes get it wrong. And I, I think that's, that is the truth of it is when people present in an interview, it's, it's often just misreading each other so I'm not blaming individuals or blaming ourselves it can also be that they thought who we were or that our clients were going to be doing different things so mm. you know we've had some people who have come to work for us and then said that they really want to work in luxury goods and saying but we've never had a luxury good brand at the moment yeah. or we don't have any at the moment so you know right. we haven't changed um we've had some people who've said they just they're just finding the commute difficult and saying well we haven't moved the office since we <laughs> You know, so those kind, those are small things, and usually at sure. a slightly sort of lower, at a, at a more junior level. Mm. But but the reality is, do we ever really get to know someone super well from a few meetings? And it's probably even harder now. But we've been really lucky; we've taken on two super new people this year alone, and we're still looking for a few more. So the other way we do it as well is before we employ anyone, we get two or three of the team at least to meet them without us being present, to say, can you ask questions to and give them the opportunity to find out what we're really like to work with, but also to give people from different level, they can listen to things and say, it was really funny when they asked about this. And often they'll have more confidence to ask a question to somebody else than they might to, to me sure. or one of the, the, the sort of more senior members of the team. And sometimes those questions they might ask give you a little glimpse and can we just check up because I gather you wanted to know a little bit more about this. And that's when you do begin to get a sense that maybe it's not going to be a perfect, perfect match. But I, I think it's impossible to say you're ever guaranteed making a perfect hire. You just have to hope it's going to be like that. Hmm. Tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced your approach to insights, to market research, mm. growing agencies, yeah. Okay, I think one of the best mentors I ever had was um, back in the days, he was the marketing manager when I was a brand manager. And he really instilled in me the profit principle. And that was an amazing thing to to learn 
to read those. And, and in those days, we had a mainframe computer and all these charts would come out of it and working out, you know, what we had in the warehouse and what was going on. But that sense of waste and how to and margin and profitability and what we could spend on advertising, hmm. which really was running a brand that was so useful. So I think working for a head of a really good head of marketing for almost two years was um, pretty instrumental. Mm. I, and I've had some, we've had some really good mentors in the business that have been fantastic for personal development and awareness. So they've been really good. But in a way, some of my best mentors have been what I call an anti-mentor, because I think you learn as much from people who have really pissed you off <laughs> or really behaved inappropriately with yeah. clients or with your team. And you just learn from them this is exactly how I don't want to be. And if this behavior, if I would ever do anything like this. So I think you can learn as much from the anti-mentors in life as you can from your mentors. Sure. Don't be like this person. Love do it. not be like this person. <laughs> if anyone ever says you're just like, I'll be thinking, no, I don't want to be like that person. Absolutely love it. Tell us about some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, personal development branding, insights, whatever? Oh, do you know, I'm really ashamed to say I don't read a great deal, but my favorite books is anything to do with foraging. Foraging? Because I love foraging. So okay. whether it's Roger Phillips on Mushrooms, which is a reference book, but I've just bought my latest one, Liz Knight. I have so many books on foraging because they're full of such lovely information and they take me to a place that I love to be, which is outside and foraging, even though I'm not doing that. So that's my favorite books. Um, I love looking and reading cookbooks, even if I might not cook. It's just nice to sit and read <laughs> the latest Ottolenghi or the latest book. Therapeutic. The, the other thing I discovered last year, which I find really useful, is an app called Blinkist. Have you heard of it, Nathan? I have, yeah. yeah. Shortens books for you, gives you summaries. Yeah, Brilliant. I'm all for the summary. You know, the soundbite thinking. <laughs> Right. Give me 15 minutes to read a book because sometimes, you know, I don't want all the theory. I just want to know what does this mean for me? But when I go away on holiday, I'll take about eight or nine books with me and just almost chew through them at a rate of knots. But I'm not a right. brilliant reader, I'm afraid. Okay. Amazon Prime or Netflix, what are you watching or streaming that's good? Um, I missed out on and someone just told me about a series that I think has just finished series four, but it's called Unforgotten. And I'm on this. I've just finished the second um, series of that. And remind us what that's about. Um, it's two people who are the, they're detectives, and they find um, they they unpack a crime from like 10, 15 years ago. Right. Okay. And they work together. It's it's really really brilliant, and they seem to have star-studded casts in each series. But mm. it's also this sort of all these random people that somehow thread together at the end, and it, they're very very well written. Well, like the first two series are brilliant. Um, no spoilers mm. for what happens from series three and four. Okay. And over, over, what have I been? I loved Unorthodox and loved Big Little Lies. Yeah. A yep. really guilty pleasure to watch with my kids, but we've finished it, is Below Deck, which is, I know it's just okay. like saying I love junk food, but, you know, it's great. <laughs> Below Deck? I don't know that one. Below Deck, it's about people, um, it's sort of on super yachts. And oh, I see. And right. you learn about how how filthy the filthy rich are. 
and you also learn about all the things about going going on below and it's usually you know so there's there's great food there's sort of drama below decks but it, yeah. it's sort of and I'd like to say a slice of life but none of us would ever probably get to see that yeah sounds like great trashy tv and then the other one would be Ozark which I had never seen before but you know that I think suddenly got into binge watching which I've never really done before and that's just been mm. this last year I guess Absolutely love it. Some great recommendations there. Last couple of questions and then I'll, I'll let you go, Monique. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to a young person or a millennial who wants to start their career in the agency world and specifically an insights agency? Mm. First of all, be prepared to work really hard to maintain curiosity and find out, can I ask you this? Not to be shy about saying, what is a, not to feel any question if you're starting out is a silly question because you mm. can't know anything when you start out. So, of course, you've got to ask questions. So to be curious, which is one of our values at Relish. I think being willing is really important to put the hand up to help out, to step up or, you know, not to say that's my lot done. I'm not working on that project. I'm not helping out. So you really notice it when people are willing to sort of, even when they're starting out to say, what can I do? Is there anything I can do to help out here? And 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 also to realize that they're just as able to come up with great ideas or to initiate things that might be useful to us internally as an agency or for a client and to, to, to not be afraid to have a voice. And that's also for us to make sure we're there listening, I think. Mm, absolutely love it. Great advice. And my final question, Monique, what is it you know about growing an insight agency today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Mm. I think the focus for me is now far more on the people and how important it is to surround yourself with a great team and to work with really brilliant clients. And we sort of had a real big think about two or three years ago, and we worked out that it doesn't really matter what the brand is or the product is. It's the client relationships that are so important. And working with great clients is so exciting and and makes it so enjoyable to be working in the whole insights industry. So I think focusing on the people who you work for and and the work that you actually do for them is, is just so much more rewarding as a result. So it's really about human relationships, I think. Mm-hmm great place to end. Monique, thank you so much for doing this. Well, Nathan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. We have been speaking with Monique Drummond. She is currently the founder at Relish. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 120 such conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in the agency world. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Nathan Annie Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Anita Beckoldi is our production assistant. Sarah Spence is our booker slash project manager. Tyler Baller is our editor. Christoph Boaszczek is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Annie Barber. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. What if I told you there was a way that you or your clients could speak directly to a captive audience of senior agency leaders, CEOs and managing directors of some of the biggest agencies in the world? Well, that's what you get when you sponsor the Agency Deal Masters podcast. We have thousands of monthly listeners from all over the world 
and it's not just agency owners. Over 25% of our audience are also senior marketing brand leaders from the likes of Aviva, BMW, Salesforce, and Google. As we continue to attract big names to the show like Adobe, Revolut, and Virgin Money, you can be sure that Agency Deal Masters will be the place for you to get your brand's message directly into the ears of the people that you want to be speaking to. So head over to agencydealmasters.com sponsor or email me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com to find out more.